Hey everyone and welcome to this special podcast from Ossert's 2013 conference on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. This podcast is made possible by Sophos, security made simple. Datacom TSS, discreet, niche and tailored. And bugcrowd.com, outsourced bug bounty programs. Now, active defense is the new black. It is the issue of 2013. One of the organizations that helped put the issue on the agenda is a new company called CrowdStrike, a relatively new company called CrowdStrike, which was founded by some senior ex-technologists from McAfee. CrowdStrike was founded on the premise that simply relying on defensive measures in information security isn't enough. Uh, you need to be able to mess with your adversaries. One of CrowdStrike's founders was Dmitry Alperovich. Uh, he was at Ossert and used his speaking slot to basically deliver the thinking behind CrowdStrike's pitch. It's nothing earth-shattering, but it's a really well-packaged speech that presents a fairly cogent argument for the concept of active defence. Uh, I've got to say, there are some elements of this that I don't personally agree with, but, you know, it's, it's a good talk. So here it is, Dmitry Alperovich's Ossert talk entitled Offence as the Best Defence. Enjoy. Thank you very much. Wow, I didn't think anyone could go through so many slides in 40 minutes. Mark, what a great job, and thank you for setting up a great topic. So, Graham, I'm here to tell you that you can fight back, and I'll uh, explain that uh, legally. I'll explain how we do that um, um, and how one can approach um, this topic in a completely uh, legal fashion. Uh, by the way, Graham, I wasn't just talking about U.S. companies. It's really global, uh, Fortune 2000 companies, if you will. Um, in my experience, uh, every single one of them has been compromised. Um, they may or may not know it, um, and many of them have been compromised repeatedly. Um, so it's really not just a certainly U.S.-based problem. Certainly plenty of industries here in Australia, around the region, uh, have suffered from the same, um, same problem. So uh, Graham did a great introduction. Um, I was, um, I'm a co-founder and chief technology officer of a security company called CrowdStrike. Prior to that, I was running threat research uh, at McAfee where I led the uh, teams that investigated some of these um, operations. Um, CrowdStrike, just really briefly, is a company that's, that I started really to focus on this target attack problem, the nation-state attack problem that I felt the industry was not solving. And uh, we have a technology, intelligence, and, and services approach to that. But let's talk about this topic. You know, this, this is a great quote um, from a gentleman that knows certainly a lot about offense or used to know um, when he was alive. Um, and um, I'm going to talk really about something very provocative. Um, the reason I started CrowdStrike um, is because I felt that it's not that the industry was doing things wrong. I believe that we in the industry are doing the wrong things. And in fact, I believe we're making the problem wor worse, not better. It's not just that the adversary is getting better. It's that what we're doing is uh, in some ways counterproductive. And this idea of practicing passive defense I hope to show you, is fairly ludicrous. We don't do this in the physical world. Why should we ever do this, attempt to do this in cyberspace? So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about history. Um, and I think this industry sometimes doesn't get enough credit for all the great things that we have done. If you look at the security software today, whether it's operating systems, browsers, um, applications, uh, there's no question that they're much more secure than they were even just a few years ago. We have tremendous capabilities these days, um, ASLR, depth for exploit mitigation. We have sandboxes uh, on mobile platforms. We have code signing. And we have 
dramatically raise the bar for what it takes to exploit a, uh, uh, a modern system these days. Uh, we also have security vendors or um, um, uh, application providers that are much more responsive to vulnerability disclosures. And uh, you know, we have things like Patch Tuesday from Microsoft and many others that are uh, being fairly rapid in um, uh, mitigating exploits, mitigating vulnerabilities when they're discovered. Um, we could always do a lot better, but we should get, give ourselves credit for how far we've come. User education, user awareness is like it's never been before, right? Uh, most users are now aware, most companies are aware of security problems. No question could be much better, but we're seeing daily stories in the press about latest, uh, uh, latest vulnerabilities, break-ins, etc. In fact, I think Four Corners um, next uh, Monday is doing a, a story on, on cyber specifically um, that I think is going to be pretty good. So there's no question that things have gotten dramatically better in terms of the security level we're at. And yet the paradox is that, as I mentioned, every single organization out there is getting compromised. And in fact, the number of uh, compromises is escalating. More and more, we're seeing security vendors being targeted. Um, just recently, in the last couple of months, we had Bit9, before that RSA, and, and a number of others. Large organizations, whether it's Google, Microsoft, ex Facebook, etc. Organizations are spending a lot of money on security. I mean, uh, I, I've had the privilege of working with some of the security teams in those companies, and I can tell you they're top-notch. Uh, hard to find anyone better. And yet they're still falling prey to these attackers. And what we seemingly have is a situation where the, the attackers are really unstoppable. We have a problem because what we're seeing is that the, uh, the attackers that are really interested in penetrating a particular organization, they're able to do it. And they're able to do it uh, very, very well. So why, why do we have this problem? Um, one can look at the situation where we're doing better than ever, and yet the adversary is still getting in, and really derive two answers from that. One is that we're not doing it fast enough. We're running, but not fast enough. The adversary is outrunning us. Or one could say we're running in the wrong direction, right? And after you know, about 30 years of having a security industry, uh, we're approaching you know, since the mid-'80s is where we really had a commercial-focused security industry, um, we really need to start asking ourselves, is our strategy correct? Because we keep doing the same thing again and again and again, expecting a different result. Some may say that's the definition of insanity, and we're losing, right? So I certainly believe that it is time to re-examine our existing strategy and start thinking about what we can do uh, differently. We're seeing not just compromises uh, uh, by cyber espionage actors, not just theft of intellectual property, not just theft um, of business strategies, but we're now starting to see uh, severe distractive attacks. So we have seen, for example, in um, uh, the Middle East last summer, Aramco and Razgas uh, facing a very destructive activity uh, where machines were taken down by uh, uh, a very targeted attack. So things are escalating and uh, not getting worse, and we really need to start thinking about what it is that we're doing that, that is contributing to that problem. Here's provocative statement number one. I don't actually believe we have a security problem, a cybersecurity problem. Provocative, right? I believe we have a problem with specific threat actors. There are certain adversaries out there that are out to get us, and some of them will go through all kinds of measures to get into our organizations because of the value of the information that we may hold, because of some strategic national security priority that a nation state, an intelligence agency, an armed service may, ha may, may have. And by the way, they'll, they, they may use all measures 
uh, at their disposal to try to get into our company. It may be a cyber attack. It may be bribing a guy to push a button inside your company, right? And we need to start really thinking about this as a holistic problem. We're facing a threat actor. That threat actor may prefer cyber means for compromising our information, for compromising our systems, for destroying our data or our information systems, but they may also do something else. And we need to really start thinking about it in that fashion, that this is an adversary-focused problem and not a, not a security problem. The threat actors that we have coming after us have different motivations, different budgets, different capabilities, uh, different resources. And we really need to start differentiating between them as well. Because the things that you do to stop a guy on, the, on my right there are very different from the things you would want to do to stop an intelligence agency with billions of dollars and, and budgets, lots and lots of people, and uh, tremendous capabilities both in cyber as well as human, satellite, communications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? You wouldn't think in the physical world that you would use the same security system that you would put on your house to prevent a kid that's going around the neighborhood jiggling doors and, and seeing uh, where he can get in and use the same system to stop a SWAT team that's trying to break into your house, right? Two very different threat actors, different motivations, different capabilities, and it requires completely different approaches uh, to um, stop either one of those. So I would argue that the one-size-fits-all solution space that we're all trying to find here is completely misleading. We need to, to understand who our enemy is and how do we craft an approach that can actually stop that specific threat actor that's coming after us. Now, let's talk about the threat actors. There are a variety of them, right? We have hacktivist groups that have certain personal grievances and uh, uh, particular motivations, uh, pr primarily probably to do defacement type of activity, embarrassment, and so forth. We have criminal organizations, organized and disorganized, uh, that have primarily financial motive. And uh, we also have competitors, as well as nation states, that are more interested in espionage, stealing our data, stealing our intellectual property, or even on that high end, uh, do destructive activity uh, that may be is um, uh, a way to send a message to us um, for deterrent effect or to actually accomplish some strategic national priority. Now, when you look at that, uh, you realize that the way you address the problem of intelligence agencies that are coming after you, which is what we're seeing with a lot of these targeted attacks now, you know, when you look at uh, intrusions from China, for example, and the attribution that has been done by Mandiant, uh, ourselves, and many others, you realize that it's the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and particularly the third department in that um, uh, organization that is responsible for intelligence collection and signals intelligence, sort of their version of DSD or NSA, that is coming after us. And the way we need to com combat the, that threat is very, very different from the way we would address the problem of uh, the criminal groups that are coming after us to steal our financial data or hacktivist gr uh, group that, that's attempting to, um, uh, to, to steal our, um, uh, to deface our websites. So let's talk about the fact that even though we have these different types of threat actors, there are actually only two categories of them. You certainly have the opportunistic guys, and I put hacktivists in this category as well as the criminal groups. Certainly on the criminal side, it's very easy to understand. Criminals are motivated by money. Money is fungible. If I can't get it from this organization, I'll move to an organization down the street. 
um, and uh, where I can have an easier return on my investment, less effort, same return, right? Hacktivist groups, even though they may have personal grievances, are actually uh, um, oftentimes motivated by the same return on investment. And, and we see this all the time. So uh, there's a case in the U.S. right now that's fairly controversial with Aaron Schwartz, um, uh, a gentleman that uh, uh, wanted to break into MIT to steal some um, academic journals and publish them online, sort of that uh, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of um, information um, purpose that he had. He was prosecuted by um, the Justice Department in the U.S. and ended up uh, tragically committing suicide. And you had a, a number of hacktivist groups that uh, wanted to sort of avenge his death and uh, went after the Justice Department and the FBI to show them except that uh, their networks were fairly secure, their websites couldn't be defaced, so they went on, on and found uh, the uh, site of the Sensing Commission, uh, which was much less secure and defaced that. Close enough, I couldn't hit the target I really wanted, uh, but uh, Sensing Commission affiliated with the Department of Justice, uh, I still accomplished my goal. But then you really have the target attackers who couldn't care less about anyone else and really want you. Right? And, and the reason they want you is because of something valuable that you'll, only you may have. Right? You may be a mining company that is involved in some negotiation with the Chinese, and they really want your negotiation strategy. And it doesn't really matter that the mining company doesn't, down the street has no security whatsoever, and you've tried your best to build a Fort Knox. They want that strategy. And that strategy may be worth hundreds of millions of dollars to them because it's for deal that, that may be worth billions of dollars. So the return on the investment for trying to warm themselves in and penetrate all the layers that you have of your security, whatever you've got, network-based solutions, host-based solutions, et cetera, is totally worth it because of what you may get. Another example that, that, that's easy to understand, Boeing. Uh, you know, Boeing's built, built this uh, Dreamliner jet that uh, you know, is the next generation technology, uh, much more efficient and, and all the rest um, when it doesn't blow up. Um, but um, let's say you have an aircraft manufacturer, let's say in China, that is interested in that technology, that is interested in building a competitive jet so that they can market it to airlines around the world. Now, they could play it honestly and try to invest in research and development and manufacturing to try to build that type of capability, and they would probably spend a couple of decades doing it, just like Boeing did, and billions of dollars. Or they could attempt to break into Boeing or any one of their supply partners, for, for that matter, and steal that information, saves themselves decades of research and billions of dollars, right? And the idea that they would even spend, I don't know, $100 million and a couple of years trying to break into Boeing to get that, to that information still makes it completely worth it, right? Because the return is still uh, far outweighs um, the, um, uh, uh, what, 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 the um, uh, what effort they're putting in place to get into Boeing. So that asymmetry that exists between the return on investment and the effort is one of the fundamental problems that we face with these target attackers. Um, and uh, the idea that we'll put more layers, defense in depth, will make it harder for them, really doesn't work. Because at the end of the day, they'll still have a motivation and a return that can be measured in millions or, or sometimes even billions of dollars. So spending more time trying to break into the company makes it completely worth it. So all you're doing is just delaying the inevitable. Let's talk about the fact that we also have different adversary groups that are out there, right? It's simplistic to say it's China, it's Russia, it's, it's Iran. We actually have different organizations within these countries 
that are focused on very specific things. So within China, for example, CrowdStrike, we track over 25 different groups. Uh, many affiliated with the government, some are affiliated with private companies. They have very specific interests. Some of these groups are focused on dissident groups. Some of them are focused on financial companies. Others are focused on high tech or energy or what have you. And the reason that happens is because they're affiliated with government organizations or, or private companies that have that specific interest. Uh, so even though you may have the third department of the PLA hacking into your company, chances are they're working on behalf of a consumer of that intelligence that they're bringing back. It may be a private company, it may be a state-owned enterprise, or it may be a government department uh, within China that is asking for that information. And understanding who that group is, what their tradecraft is, and uh, what information they're after really becomes critical to informing your defensive posture as well as trying to figure out what can you actually do to them to change that calculus, to change that asymmetry uh, that exists so that they won't just keep trying again and again and again knowing that they have to succeed once while we, uh, you have to su succeed 100% of the time. Uh, a simple statistical lesson for you. Uh, it's a little bit simplistic. Uh, the modeling uh, in, in real world is a little more complex, but I think it serves a useful purpose. If you have a solution or a set of solutions that give you 99% effectiveness at identifying and blocking attacks, what does that really mean? Well, assuming that each attack is an independent event, which it may not be, but let's assume for the sake of argument that it is, all that means is that the adversary has to try 200 times before they have 90% chance of success. 200 times. So all you're doing is making them earn their medals while not actually solving the problem. You're delaying the inevitable. So what we have as a strategy today is essentially this, castle building. Incidentally, in the uh, physical world, this hasn't worked for, what, four, 500 centuries? Uh, we don't live in bunkers. We don't live in castles anymore. We've adapted in our security practices. And we realize that threat deterrence is critical, right? If you think about your house, right? We, we, have, we all have locks on our doors. We lock our windows, perhaps. But we realize that if someone really want, wants to break into our house, they can do it. Right? They can go through the window, they can uh, you know, parachute down perhaps and uh, you know, break through our roof. Our house is not a fortress. We know that. And what do we do? Well, we use, we use that minimum level of defense, that lock on the door, to stop that very opportunistic threat actor. The kid going around the neighborhood jiggling doors that doesn't really want to go through the trouble of picking your lock when he knows that a house down the street has a door wide open. But we know that if we have something truly valuable in there, jewels, what have you, then our security model completely changes, right? We install an alarm system. And that alarm system does absolutely nothing to secure our house, right? It doesn't prevent anyone from walking in. But it does two things. One, it hopefully includes cameras so that when the adversary breaks in, we can take their picture and pass it on to the police um, to help catch them. But also what happens when the alarm company rings you up at 3 o'clock in the morning and says... Sir, ma'am, we've detected an alarm from your house. Your door's been broken into. And we're going to call, not the locksmith, because your door's been broken into. Clearly, we need to fix your door. No, we're calling the police to catch the bad guy, to identify them, to, to apprehend them, to return your property back, or make sure they don't kill you, right? Yet, what do we do in cyberspace, right? What, what is an alarm system? It's an IDS system, right? It's a firewall, what have you, a SIM. An alarm goes off. And we call the locksmith. 
well, clearly someone's broken in. We've got a problem. We've got an exploit. Let's patch it. No one says, let's go find the bad guy. Let's go make an impact on them. Let's make sure they never do this again. Let's take them off the battlefield. So what are we doing? We're just letting them continue this activity, keep coming back again and again and again until they succeed and take everything they can possibly have from us. And we're no longer an interesting target. That's one way to defend yourself, by the way, is uh, making sure you have nothing valuable worth stealing. So in fact, what we're doing now, I would argue, is actually escalatory. Now you may ask, how can defense be escalatory? Isn't that uh, counterintuitive? Well, actually it's not. Um, if you think about uh, missile defense, uh, back in the 80s we had a big argument in the United States about missile defense and whether it makes sense to do, right? And, and, and in and of itself, it's actually not a bad idea. If you're trying to deter a threat actor with limited capabilities, a rogue regime like North Korea that uh, doesn't have enormous budgets, having a limited missile defense to stop the small number of rockets that they may have makes complete sense. However, when you're dealing with a threat actor that has enormous resources, what happens? Well, you build a shield and a number of interceptors uh, to shoot down the, uh, the missiles that may be raining down on you, and the adversary says, huh, well, they have 10 interceptors. Let me build 100 missiles to exceed that threat. And by the way, the cost of those missiles is usually much less than the cost of the interceptors and the whole system that you're designing, right? And then they can invent other things, multiple independent reentry uh, vehicles for their warheads and, and other things to, def uh, to, to defeat, um, uh, defeat your system. And what we end up with is an arms race, an escalatory arms race where you're forcing the adversary to escalate their capabilities and ultimately exceed your level of defense. And that's exactly what we have today in cyberspace. For every countermeasure we put in place, for every wall we build, they bring a taller ladder to climb over our wall, and the ladder costs them a fraction of the cost that we are spending to actually build that wall. How can that make sense? So what, what is the solution? How do we change this asymmetry? Well, I argue that it starts with understanding your enemy. It starts with attribution. The idea that you don't want to understand who's attacking you is ludicrous, right? Just think about it in the real world. Someone breaks into your company to steal your most sensitive files in the physical world. Don't you want to know who took them? Do you want to know that it's a kid down the street that was really looking for someone's wallet and he's just going to throw that, uh, those files in a trash can? Or that it's your competitor who now has your business strategy, your negotiation plan, and is going to use it against you in the marketplace? Who doesn't want to know that? Anyone? Someone breaks into your house late at night. Do you want to know that it's someone who came in to kill you? Or someone who is just uh, walking away with your TV? Of course you want to know. So why is it that no one is asking that question in cyberspace today? Who is actually breaking into my company? They took all this information. Who was it? What are they going to do with that information? Our executives want to know that. Yet the CISOs, the CIOs of companies, seem to be completely uninterested in answering that question makes absolutely no sense, baffling to me. So how do we change the game so that we're not just forcing the adversary to try a few hundred times until they, they can succeed and actually raise that cost dramatically? Now, some of you may say, you know, if you're facing the PLA, if you're facing NSA, whomever, they have so many resources, so many people, such huge budgets that you really have no chance of blocking them. 
And I would say that's true. But then if you look at the, again, the physical world, and, and I like the physical world analogies because they just bring this topic into such clarity. Cyber is not that different. In the physical world, we have agencies that are focused on espionage, traditional espionage with human sources. And uh, some of them are very successful. But yet we don't see them sending spies into every company to try to get information, right? Why is that? It's not because they, they, they don't want to, to have that information. And, and sometimes, in very strategic cases, they do. But they don't have the resources, even despite their huge budgets, and they can't tolerate the risk when they send hundreds and hundreds of people into every company out of the planet, on the planet. The reason is that the cost of training an agent, the, the cost of deploying them, the risk that if they get caught, that they'll get arrested, that there'll be diplomatic repercussions, is enormous, right? So for certain strategic assets, you know, whether it's the Department of Defense or Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they'll still keep doing it because the return is worth it. But doing it on a large scale no longer makes sense. So how do we create an environment in cyber where we have the same situation, where the cost of doing this activity and the risk to the threat actor is so high that it no longer makes sense? For, cer for certain targets, it will always make sense. For national security targets, if they believe the security of their country is at stake, they'll absolutely keep on doing it, and sometimes they'll succeed, and that's a fact of life. Espionage has been around for thousands of years. It will go on until um, the, um, the civilization ceases to exist. But we don't want to have this widespread massive theft that is occurring today on, on a scale unprecedented in history from taking place and compromising the economic security of this country, of the United States, and the, and the rest of the Western world um, as we're seeing today. What else do we need to do other than attribution? Well, we need to start focusing on tradecraft. Today, we look for indicators of compromise. We look for signatures. We don't look at how the actions that the adversary is taking are actually being executed. Again, physical world example. Let's pretend you're a thief, and you, want to br you, you discovered completely new tradecraft that allows you to break into the museum to steal, I don't know, the Hope Diamond something truly valuable, right? You figured out the whole thing, how to break into the museum, disable the alarm system, mess with the cameras, lift the glass, disable the pressure plate, get out, uh, um, not be caught, right? Do you think you would use that tradecraft on a jewelry store down the street if you figure it out? No, right? You would use it to break into the museum, you would steal the Hope Diamond, and you would probably retire because you know you can never use that tradecraft again. Because when the police comes to investigate that crime, they don't focus on what color shoes you wore, whether you had a jacket on or not, what kind of lockpick you used to pick the door, right? No, they're focusing on your tradecraft, how you did all those things that I mentioned earlier. And that's what we need to start focusing on in cyberspace. What you focused on, what kind of gun it was, what kind of bullet, what kind of um, uh, jacket you wore, was it a green jacket, a red jacket? Who cares? We understand who you are, and we understand your tradecraft for how you actually operate inside my network. And everyone has very different tradecraft. In fact, what we see is that getting into a company is dirt easy, right? Sending a spearfish with a zero day that you can buy for a few tens of thousands of dollars, no problem at all. Send it to half the company, all you need is one person to click, and you're in. When you're in, that's where the hard work begins. 
You don't know that network. You don't even know perhaps where you landed. You may land on some secretary's box and you really want to be all the way over there. You don't have the network mapped out. You don't know what privileges you need to roam around that network and to ultimately get to the information you want. It's going to take you time to do that. It's going to take you time to do that reconnaissance, to map out that network, to get the privileges that you want, to ultimately accomplish your objective. And that's what tradecraft is. And everyone has their own techniques, their own tools. And at the end of the day, you have a human being at the other end of the keyboard that's actually orchestrating this activity. It's not automated. It's very difficult to do. And when you have someone who's trained to do it day in, day out, it's very hard for them to change that methodology. And if they have to change it for every single intrusion that they do, the cost of that activity goes up dramatically. Another thing we need to start focusing on. We've attributed them. We have their tradecraft to make sure that they can never use that tradecraft again. How do we actually respond and start thinking about deterrent effect against an adversary? I'm not arguing for hacking back and for going in and destroying their machine. But what can you do to, to dramatically change that cost equation? How about deception? How about feeding them misinformation? They think that they stole the design blueprints for the Dreamliner, but in reality, there are a few modifications in those blueprints. They'll end up uh, with a plane that's incredibly inefficient. So what you'll have is an adversary that's going to spend a couple of years building that plane to those specifications in the end, and, and, and throwing hundreds of millions of dollars at it, in the end, they're going to get something that's truly worthless. Or even more tactically, they're stealing that negotiation strategy from the mining company so that they can better um, uh, get a better deal out of them when they negotiate face-to-face, -face, and they stole the wrong strategy. Now they're going to take actions in response that are going to be driven by false information. And I can tell you that there is nothing more impactful to an intelligence agency than not being able to trust your sources. That's how you get into Iraq, right? That's one method. What else can we do to them? Well, certainly publicly revealing their identity can be helpful, making them a pariah in the world. And, and I don't mean just a nation state, right? You know, there's certainly enough reports out there that China is hacking everyone. Um, and even though the level of attention that's been paid to this at the highest government levels um, is starting to, I think, have a little bit of a dent on their behavior, but still very, very little. Ultimately, where we can have the biggest leverage is against actual companies in China, in India, and elsewhere where we're seeing this activity that are behind the, uh, either behind the hacking or in the receipt of the stolen property from the hacking. When we see the PLA hacking into Coca-Cola, it is not because they suddenly want to enter into the soft drinks business. No. There is a company in China, maybe private sector, maybe state-owned, that ultimately wants to receive that information and is working with that PLA general to get that information from Coca-Cola. And it's that company that you can have a real impact on in the physical world. Because that company doesn't just want the information from Coca-Cola to, to build a great business in China. They want to be a multinational company. They want to sell their goods here in Australia, in Japan, in US, in Europe, etc. And if they know that that business is going to be dramatically impacted, if they know that they'll face legal action, perhaps injunctive relief, punitive damages, if they know their executives may get arrested when they travel over here, they're going to think twice about it. 
So the next time that the PLA shows up on their doorstep and says, hey, here's all the information we stole from your competitor, they may say, you know what, thank you, but we're going to compete fairly because the risk to our global business is too high for us to tolerate uh, uh, receiving that information and actually using it um, um, against our competitors. Now, if all they want to do is just build the best business in China, fine, let them have it. But that's not the case. Most of these companies are now multinational companies with significant amount of business overseas. And that's where you can really start to have an impact on them and on their, on their way of thinking. What else can you do? Well, this is where you may start getting into the gray areas, but we actually had a number of very interesting events that have occurred just the last four or five months where we had both government and private sector around the world taking very interesting action um, that you know, some of us may interpret uh, as being in that gray uh, area of the, um, of the legal system. The first one uh, occurred last fall where you had the Georgian CERT, which is a government-affiliated organization in the um, country of Georgia, that identified a Russian intruder on their networks. And instead of just shutting down that activity, they decided to do counterintelligence. They placed a document on the system that the attacker was on that was titled Georgia-NATO Negotiation. Sure enough, it was taken. And that document, they put a piece of malware in it that executed when the adversary opened it up and that allowed the Georgians to jump onto his machine. They didn't destroy anything. They looked through the files, they activated the webcam, they took the picture and took it all back and published a report, public report with all the information that they've taken. Now, one may say that that's hackback, but another way of looking at it, you know, again, if you want to look at physical world analogies, is it's, it's a die pack, right? Something was taken from your network. The Georgians didn't go in to hack into that guy's box. They took information from their own network, and it was the equivalent of a die pack, right? It blew up on their face. Now, the goal of that, the die pack blowing up is not to harm anyone. It is really to highlight them uh, with blue dye so that they can be attributed, so that the police can catch them. And essentially, that's exactly what was, what was done in this case. They used that piece of malware that was hidden in that document to activate the web camera, get the guy's picture, attribute them, and publish it all for, for everyone to see and put pressure on the Russians to deal with the problem. Another case that happened with a private sector entity literally about a month ago. This time, a security company in Luxembourg, in the follow-up to the uh, APT-1 report, decided to map out the infrastructure in Hong Kong uh, looking for poison ivy servers, a very common rat that's used by a number of Chinese actors. Now, they mapped it out. They scanned the whole Hong Kong IP space and found a number of servers. But then they decided to go a step further and actually exploit the, the servers because Poison Ivy has a very well-known protocol vulnerability. So they exploited them. They got into those systems and started looking around and identified a whole slew of victims that the Chinese were hacking and then started doing notifications to those victims. Now, again, that's something that is in that gray area of the law. You're actually, in this case, you are hacking into the system un, un, unpromoted, uh, un, unprompted. But what is the impact? The impact is that you can alert victims that they've been hacked. You can potentially even return their property back to them or at least tell them what was taken. Um, and you're not doing anything destructive. Now, one may say this is an activity that should be done by governments. Perhaps. Perhaps that's the case. Of course, they're not doing it. And again, in the physical world, we have lots of precedent where private sector takes action every single day 
that may be law enforcement domain, but where the government either is not able to act because they're not there or because uh, it is too slow to act. Just think of this case. Someone steals your wallet and is running down the street with that wallet. And you scream, stop that guy. He's got my wallet. What do you want as a response from the Good Samaritans that are on that street? That they would rush to a phone and call the police to, to, to tell them that someone just stole a wallet and stand by waiting for the police to arrive while the guy disappears? Or do you want them to actually tackle the guy, not harm them, not go vigilante on them, not kill them, but hold them until the, the law enforcement can arrive and actually deal with the problem? Happens every single day, right? In fact, in the English legal system, we have a concept of civil arrest, where a private sector individual can take action where the government has no authority or is not able to act. In fact, this goes back centuries. Back in the 1700s, 1600s, we had the concept of letters of mark, where the governments were empowering private sector ships to essentially act with their authority to uh, find pirates and seize them on the, on the high seas. The reason they were doing this is because they didn't have the navies with the reach that they, uh, that they needed at the time to actually enforce the law on the high seas, right? So the reason makes complete sense. Obviously, that's an obsolete technique. We're not asking for letters of mark these days. But the concept of private sector taking action makes total sense for us. We do this all the time. Pre-9-11, let's say September 10th, 2011, someone is rushing the cockpit door, and you're sitting in your seat on that airplane looking at the guy storming the cockpit door. You have three choices in front of you, right? One, you can say, well, I can tackle this guy and hold him, but I've consulted with my lawyer, and if I do that, that's actually assault and battery. If I hold him, that's kidnapping. I'm refraining, restraining his movement, so I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. You could do that, right? Not something we want in, in, in the real world. Another option is you tackle him, you pull out a knife, and you kill him. The plane lands, you turn over his dead body to the, uh, to the police, right? Again, not something we want. The middle ground is you tackle him, you hold him, you don't harm him, harm him. plane lands, law enforcement takes over. That's what we want. We want the private sector to have the ability to act to restrain a threat with restraint. So how do we do this in cyberspace? How do we enable us to have the tools that we need to actually operate sometimes outside of our network to achieve an impact? Today, it may be difficult with the existing legal system, and I think we need to have an open discussion with our policymakers about the authorities that need to be granted for the private sector, limited authorities with oversight, and perhaps certifications and the rest. But how do we start doing that where we're not just playing the role of the victim and can actually make an impact on the adversary? There's a variety of things you can do today. The things I mentioned earlier, deception, misinformation, attribution, legal action, that is in the realm of the private sector. And there's a range of things that you can do ultimately to um, uh, make an even bigger impact if we can get a legal system um, adjusted. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. And I'm happy to take, uh, we have a few minutes, take any questions. One or two questions. Yes, in the back over there. Hi, just wanted to, uh, early in your piece, you talked a lot about China, and uh, again, probably it's been a theme for the last day or two. 
If you read the popular press, I mean, the US Signals Intelligence, Echelon have passed information, or they've been accused of passing information on Airbus to Boeing, for example, um, or which isn't China versus America or China versus the world, or similarly, um, I guess, depending on which report you read, there are the two largest proponents of cyber warfare. There'd be China and America, and depending on which one you read, which article you read, one may be ahead of the other. I guess, what's the focus at the moment? Why does China always come up in these presentations as the negative, as the adversary, when we look at it in a more common sense? Well, first of all, the, the policy of the US government and, um, in fact, uh, all of the Five Eyes allies, Australia, United Kingdom, uh, Canada, New Zealand, is to not engage in economic espionage. So the, the example you just used, it is against United States policy to help a private sector entity using its intelligence resources. So whether you choose to believe it or not, that is the articulated policy of the US government and, and, and our allies. Um, and I don't believe that it's happening. Um, now, the US and others are engaging in espionage activity for the purpose of national security. Everyone does this. And, but that's very different from the economic espionage that has been orchestrated by China on a massive scale. So even though espionage, espionage is occurring by most industrialized countries, the idea of getting, going into private sector company and stealing everything they've got and then turning it over to a local competitor is something that, uh, when done on a scale that the Chinese are doing, is really unacceptable. I, I understand that, but it has been reported, and it's, it's clearly understood that, as I say, the US SIGINT people passed information on Airbus, a French, German, a European company, straight to Boeing, an American company, on it was bribery allegations of a deal in Saudi Arabia or something. But that was straight signals intelligence passed to a commercial entity over a $6 billion deal. It does happen. It's not just China that's doing it. I think we're naive if we keep saying China is stealing information for commercial gain. There's a long history of this, and that was 1995. If I believe so, the Baltimore so, so Times. So I've never heard of that case. Um, it may be true. In that, in that case, it's a violation of the U.S. law, and the people should have been prosecuted. Uh, but regardless of that, this is, this is not an ethical issue. This is not about who's bad, who's, who's good. In fact, I think the U.S. should be doing economic espionage for the benefit of the private sector, uh, as long as everyone else is doing it, and, and, and so is everyone else. Yeah. It's about what can we do to, the, to our enemy that is doing this to us, right? I'm an American. I care about preserving the economic well-being of the United States and our allies, I don't care about China. And it's not about saying to them, oh, you did a bad thing. It's about saying to them, you stole all this information from us, there's going to be consequences. It's not an ethical issue. Should the you know, frankly, I have no, uh, uh, I'm not surprised that the Chinese are doing this. You know, they're behind uh, uh, in uh, industrialization. They're trying to build up their country. They're trying to become a world power. If I were in that case, I'd probably be doing the exact same thing. But it doesn't mean that we should tolerate it. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, have cons we shouldn't um, uh, make sure that there are consequences for, the, for this action to them. I think this will make a great conversation over morning tea. <laughs> um, Dimitri, thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thank you for coming in and sharing that.